Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. It's been, it's been a while since I've had a chance to preach in this room. Um, I was thinking about the last time, and I think one of the last times was Mark Crumpler's last Sunday here. And if you remember, uh, we wanted Mark to be able to preach in all the services. And so he was simultaneously preaching across the street, and then it was being simulcast over here in this room. And um, that morning, I was supposed to be here to do the announcements and do the prayer, and then we would watch Mark on the screens. So that was the plan. But that morning we had some trouble with the technology and uh, about 10 minutes before the service, I can remember I was standing back there in the back and someone turned to me and they said, it's not going to work, you're going to have to preach. <laughs> now, the night before, Rebecca and I had gone to a country music concert in Alpharetta at the amphitheater. And we don't normally do stuff on Sunday night. But I had said, don't worry about it. I'm just doing the announcements. It'll be fine. So here I was at 8.35 a.m. with Darius Rucker still ringing in my ear, hearing someone saying, you're going to have to preach. And I didn't even have a Bible. My Bible was across the street in my office. So I literally ran back through the tunnel, got my Bible, uh, came back in, sat down, and as I sat down, the person sitting there beside me leaned over and said, you're up after the next song. Now, I don't know if this will be any better, but I feel a lot better prepared. <laughs> <laughs> but I do need to warn you that this is not a feel-good message. When the sermon wheel of fortune lands on Matthew 23, it's like, uh-oh. Because this is not the warm and cuddly Jesus with children sitting in his laps. This is Jesus letting them have it. So if you don't want your toes stepped on, I suggest you just kind of slide your feet under the chair. <laughs> then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted but woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves 
nor allow those who would enter to go in. Well, I warned you, Jesus isn't holding back. He is really letting them have it. You know, it's interesting that this word hypocrisy, we only see it in the Gospels and then on four other occasions in Scripture. It's a word that is used to describe an actor wearing a mask like they wore in the Roman theaters. These masks allowed the actors, they were all men at the time, to have an exaggerated expression on their face. And so the actors were playing multiple roles depending on the mask that they were wearing. So in essence, he is calling the Pharisees actors, that they are simply religiously faking it. They're playing a role. He is making clear that playing a role as a religious person is not the standard that he is setting. The new standard is not the outward appearance of religiosity, but the demonstration of mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Now, a sermon on hypocrisy is uncomfortable because if we're honest, we all wear a mask from time to time. In some shape or form, we all have times where we are hypocrites. Uh, Vicki, we were talking about this, and she found out I was preaching on this, and she told me that years ago there was a lady who was interested in joining Peachtree, and she said, I, Vicki, I need to talk to you. I have one question before I join. Are there any hypocrites at Peachtree? <laughs> and Vicki told her, yes, that we have plenty of hypocrites at Peachtree. <laughs> she said she didn't think she ever joined. But hypocrisy is not just a reflection of self-righteousness in the church or among Christians. It's a reflection of the human condition. Whether you are an atheist or a saint, at one time or another, you're wearing a mask. So a sermon on hypocrisy feels a bit personal. I have been using this coffee mug around the office just to put everyone... <laughs> on notice for the past couple of weeks. <laughs> Hypocrisy is a feature of the human condition. There are hypocrites on the political left, on the political right, there are hypocrites in the media, there are hypocrites in sports, and yes, there are hypocrites in the church. A couple of weeks ago, I told Rich, how did the PGA Tour know that I needed a sermon illustration on hypocrisy? He said, exactly. For those of you unfamiliar with the story, the Saudi Arabian government started a new golf league a while back called Live, and they have been in this huge battle with the PGA, and they paid millions and millions of dollars for some of the best golfers in the PGA Tour to join live their tour and the Saudis are engaged in what's called sports washing and sports washing to washing is basically where you try to use your involvement in sports to clean up your human rights image their hope is that as the years go by when we think of them we won't think of a dismembered journalist or 9-11 we will think of golf something we love now, since this all started, there has been this huge battle, and 
the PGA Tour has really positioned themselves as good versus e evil. And they said they were not going to take what they call blood money from the Saudis. They, um, they even used 9-11 victims' families in their effort. PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan said last year, I would ask any player who has left or any player who would consider leaving, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? And then on Jan June the 6th, out of the blue, they announced that they were actually merging with the Saudi Tour and that there would be a new organization and that um, they would all be in this together. At the announcement, a player was asked if anyone called Monaghan a hypocrite. And he said, quote, yeah, it was mentioned. <laughs> now, this may turn out to be a good business decision for the PGA Tour, but when you have promoted yourself as the protector of good versus evil, when you flip, you're going to be called a hypocrite. Now, I could spend this morning giving examples of hypocrisy. Our world is filled with them. It is a feature of the human condition. But we are not here to talk about the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We are here to talk about the kingdom of God. We are talking about Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees and what that means for us. So who exactly were these Pharisees? Well, they were a sect of Judaism during this time frame, and they, they were strict keepers of the law, but they also added a lot of other rules along the way. We frequently see them interacting with Jesus, inviting, inviting him to dinners, and the Gospel of Luke warning him when he and his disciples were in danger, and even congratulating him on how he debated their rivals, the Sadducees. In the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus complimenting their wise answers, declaring, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And in the book of Acts, we learn that Pharisees and members of the high council even spoke up in defense of Peter. And of course, we remember Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who provided his tomb for Jesus' body. And we even believe that the Apostle Paul's family probably came from the sect of the Pharisees. So in fairness, when we paint them with a broad brush, we may be giving them a bit of a bad rap. However, Jesus' view was that they had become a symptom of the problem and not part of the solution. So today in the church, when we talk about Pharisees, it's really just shorthand for self-righteousness. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller gives six ways to recognize a Pharisee, a person that's focused on wearing the mask of self-righteousness. First, he says, Pharisees know what to say, but do not do what they say. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. In essence, they preach something that they don't really practice. Pharisees practice their faith to be seen by others. Their motivation for their religious activity is to get 
credit for it. Rebecca and I go on daily walks with our dogs and she has an Apple Watch and very often we will start to walk and she will say, oh, wait a minute, I'm not getting credit. And she'll realize that her watch is not on the outdoor walk mode and she wants to make sure she gets credit. Well, the Pharisees wanted to make sure that they were getting credit. Pharisees keep people from Jesus. This one is critical, and I'll say more about it later. Essentially, their actions are alienating people from the kingdom of God. Pharisees add to their convictions and traditions to the word of God. We Presbyterians are notorious for this one. Our traditions can become a bit of an idol. Too often our primary focus is on how we do church and not why we do church. Sometimes I think some people are more passionate about the book of order than they are the word of God. Pharisees lack love for people in need. They focus on appearing religious while they ignore mercy and justice. And finally, Pharisees cover sin instead of confessing and repeating. Unfortunately, over the past few years, we've seen this a lot when there's some kind of scandal with a church or Christian celebrities. Some people care more about protecting the brand than about repentance. I suspect that we can all relate to one of these. At one time or another, I'm sure we have all participated in these. I know that I have. Now, if hypocrisy is just part of the human condition, why do we not see the warm and fuzzy Jesus here? Why does he not just say, hey guys, I know you're trying. We all fall short. Just do better next time. I love you anyway. Well, I think it's important to make a distinction between our brokenness and our hypocrisy. Because we're all broken, and if we're a follower of Jesus, we're all going to fall short, and we're all going to sin. That is not hypocrisy. That's just being human. Hypocrisy is when you put on a self-righteous mask and pretend that you have reached perfection and others haven't. It's essentially a holier-than-thou attitude. As we have read through Matthew, we have seen Jesus constantly showing mercy and compassion, but not this time. This time, he is letting them have it, calling them blind guides, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. I think the reason is because they sit on Moses' seat. They have essentially promoted themselves as representatives of Israel. Jesus knows that hypocrisy in those that claim to represent the kingdom of God is toxic and it does tremendous damage. At its core, hypocrites don't understand the gospel. When we wear a mask of self-righteousness in our life as a Christian, it shows that we think the kingdom of God is about being morally superior, or at least appearing that way. It says that we think the Christian life is about religious activity more than it is about grace. It's been said that when we know our morality better than our Savior, we start to define ourselves and our church 
by our righteousness instead of his righteousness. The problem with the Pharisees is not simply that they preach a false gospel of works. That is a serious and damnable flaw. But there are plenty of gospel-centered Pharisees today. The problem is the pride and greed and fear underneath any works-based confidence in ourselves. That pride and greed and fear eventually sever our mind and our mouth from our heart. When we don't understand the gospel, our religious posturing and activity can take us away from Jesus instead of closer to him. One of the saddest things that I have observed over the years in ministry is people that have been immersed in religious activity for decades but are angry and judgmental and only focused on themselves. They know their morality more than they know their Savior. They have been in countless Bible studies. They have heard hundreds of sermons by guys like me, but somewhere along the way, their mind and their mouth have been severed from their heart. Becoming like Jesus has been replaced by appearing religious. They have traded the cross for a mask. And that's why Jesus is so angry. Because the Pharisees had, in essence, they had lost the plot. Because the kingdom of the one true God is not characterized by defensiveness, is characterized by being a light to the world. It's not characterized by angry zeal, but by turning the other cheek. And when we are hypocritical in our life as Christians, we are demonstrating at a fundamental level that we have lost the plot, that we just don't really understand grace. We are giving the impression that we don't really need a Savior because we have saved ourselves through our moralism and that is toxic to us and it is toxic to the church woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence a true understanding of grace shows that we can't justify ourselves only jesus can do that a true understanding of grace allows us to remove our mask of self-righteousness and live as our authentic selves. A true understanding of grace removes the need to fake it. A true understanding of grace begins with the knowledge that we are all broken, none of us can measure up, and we can never really save ourselves. So hypocrites don't understand the gospel, and hypocrites don't live the gospel. They preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on other people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed. 
For they make phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue. Phylacteries were two small black leather cubes that contained Torah text and that they wore on their heads and their arms. This goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 8, and they were to be worn by male Jews over 13 years old as a reminder of their devotion to the law. They can still be seen today like on this soldier in Israel, and they were supposed to be a visible sign of devotion. In the case of of the Pharisees, Jesus is saying they have these visible signs of religious devotion, but they are at odds with the way they live. They have scripture literally tied around their head and their arms, but it's not in their heart, and it's not the way they are living their lives. It would be like if we had a really judgmental person here who always had their Quest study Bible in hand, right? It, it, it doesn't line up The actions don't line up with these outward expressions. Here's the story of a police officer that uh, pulled a lady over and he walked up and he asked for her registration and her driver's license. And she says, I don't know why you you want that. She goes, I I wasn't speeding. He goes, no, no, ma'am, you weren't speeding, but you swerved in front of that person in the left lane. You cut them off and then you stuck your arm out the window and you you had an obscene gesture. And she said, well, that's not a crime either. And he said, no, it's not, ma'am. But when I saw the what would Jesus do and choose life bumper stickers, I thought this car has got to be stolen. (laughs) The gospel is not about what we think or what we say we believe. It's about how we live. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Hypocrites don't understand the gospel. Hypocrites don't live the gospel. And hypocrites harm the gospel. As I said earlier, Matthew 23 is not a feel-good message. It is angry Jesus. When you think about how he dealt with people, you hardly ever see him this way with people on the outside. His anger is always focused on the insiders. We don't hear him railing against the Romans or the Gentiles. We don't hear him lambasting the woman at the well. He's never seen fighting a culture war on the Sea of Galilee. Instead, he reserves his harsh rhetoric for the religious leaders of the day. And I think the reason that he did that is he knew then what we know today. Hypocrisy is toxic to the kingdom of God. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. You know, consistently data shows that the number one reason that young people leave the church is because of hypocrisy 
within the church. <clears throat> Russell Moore writes that we now see young evangelicals walking away not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe that the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. Let that sink in for a minute. Young people are leaving the church not because of Jesus. They're leaving because of us. Year after year, generation after generation, students have had this powerful experience at Rutledge. Why is that? I think it's because it is an opportunity in summer camp to be pulled away from all the things that fill their lives in Buckhead and they can take off their mask and be real. It's a place where all the acting that takes place is put aside and they can be authentic with God and one another. Authenticity is attractive and hypocrisy is repulsive. I recently heard one, someone say that hypocrisy is a wrecking ball smashing human souls. You know, the greatest fear I hear on a regular basis from those in my generation is that Christianity is going away in America, that secular forces in our culture are taking over. And I share some of those fears. However, the greatest threat to our faith is not from outside forces. It's from ourselves. We don't have any chapters in Matthew devoted to Jesus railing against the decadence of Roman culture. He didn't turn over the tables in the government buildings, only in the temple. Jesus is calling the Pharisees, and he is calling us all, to look in the mirror and to ask ourselves, do my actions reflect my words? Do I serve and give in anonymity or do I do it for attention? Do I live my life in a way that attracts people to Jesus or pushes them away? Do I confuse my personal preferences and traditions with the will of God? Do I prioritize those in need over my own wants? And do I confess my failures? Is my life as a Christian real or have I traded the cross for a mask? Jesus came to create a new humanity, a humanity without mask, a humanity where we can be seen for who we really are, people in need of grace, where we can stop acting where we can remove our mask and where we can turn our eyes on Jesus and see him face to face. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, wearing a mask is exhausting and it's futile because you see who we really are. You know our thoughts, you know our actions, you know our heart. So in this week ahead, Lord, we ask that you would give us courage to look in the mirror and see what you see. Help us to see that we don't need to become better religious actors. We need your grace. 
And we pray this in your name. Amen.